Fanny Moody, a Cornish woman, was born at Redruth on November the 23rd, 1866, one of 13 children, of whom eight were singers or instrumentalists. Her father could play any instrument he had never seen before, after examining it for a few minutes, which was a good start. The best known of her sisters was Hilda Moody, whose artistry in musical comedy at Daly's Theatre was recognised by the leading critics of her day, and her beauty by collectors of theatrical picture postcards, then all the rage. In short, a pin-up girl. At the age of 12, Fanny Moody was paid two guineas a night for singing at local concerts in Cornwall. Her first, brother, her first teacher was Madame Saint-Andolby, who sang in oratorio and concerts, and instructed her in sight singing, Italian, harmony and elocution, for two whole years restricting her to a diet of solfeggi, vocalizzi, and a few oratorios. When pronounced ready, she accepted an engagement to sing at Newcastle-upon-Tyne in a sacred concert under Narcisse Vert's management for a fee of five guineas. In those days, she wrote, I was able to pay my fares, stay at a hotel, and come away with some money. Senior Foley, the Irish bass, was the star of the occasion, and after Miss Moody had received six recalls from the audience, he said, Ah, my little woman, I think you will be back again. How true. Before she left the artist's room, Mr. Vert booked her to sing in ten different towns at ten guineas a concert, although she was only 17, and still studying. As far as I know, she never made a gramophone or phonograph record, but here is Gwen Catley in Oh Had I Jubal's Lyre from Handel's Auditorio, Joshua.
introduction to Lady Moral Mackenzie, wife of the famous throat specialist, gave Fanny Moody her first real break. Invited to their regular Thursday receptions, she met most of the musical celebrities, including Goring Thomas, the composer, who wrote a song for her, a setting of Goethe's Knows Thou the Land, which he used to sing at most of these receptions to his accompaniment. A shy man, he preferred listening to the works of other composers. Of another composer of the day, she writes, I shall always remember the women when he sang. It was not admiration, it was a adoration. And that, of course, was Isidore de Lara. From oratorio to opera, at the Moral Mackenzie, she was introduced to Carl Rosa himself, and at his house, when she sang to her own accompaniment, he asked her if she had a top C. She went one better, retaliating with a top D, which led to his offer of a three years contract in his opera company. His terms were unacceptable, but finally agreement was reached and she signed. Her first appearance was as Arlene in The Bohemian Girl at the Court Theatre, Liverpool. And here is her soliloquy, Balfour is best, as interpreted by Joan Sutherland.
After one of the performances in Liverpool, when the curtain went down, Carl Rosa admonished the tenor, impersonating Thaddeus, with, I will not have you hug the prima donna's soul. And one of the Sunday papers, criticising the performance, wrote, I don't think much of Mr. Name Suppressed, of course, but I'll back him as the greatest hugger I've ever seen on the stage. And later, her first tour with the Rosa, be beginning with Dublin, where she quickly became the darling of the gods, I mean the students of Trinity College. In the company's last week, a bunch of them lowered a basket of flowers with two doves inside onto the stage, reaching her feet at the end of her marble hall's aria. After the show, some of them unharnessed the horse of her cab and pulled her and her sister all the way to their destination, where they arrived at midnight. The next visit was to Belfast. On the train journey there, a giant of a man with a colossal voice came to the Moody's compartment, inquired after the doves and asked if he might join Fanny and her sister Maria if they didn't object to his smoking. They assented gladly as they had recently lost their father and were feeling depressed. Of course, it was Charles Mallard, a principal of the company, whom they had not met before. In Belfast, the three of them and a young married couple shared the same suite of rooms in their hotel. Mallard's contract with the Rosa was for two years and nearing its end, but Fanny's had a year to run. By this time, she was playing soprano leads in Mignon, Faust, and Massaniello by Ober. Here is Je suis Titania, that sparkling number from Mignon, which shows off the coloratura quality of the singer. It was a feature of Miss Moody's voice.
strife. Maria Moody thought that Fanny's engagement to Charles Moody would be fatal to her career, but as it turned out, it was a boon and a blessing. On July the 5th, 1890, Charles Mallers and Fanny Moody were married at St. George's, Hanover Square. Sir Moral Mackenzie gave away the bride, and the wedding breakfast and reception were held at the Mackenzie's house in Harley Street. The honeymoon was spent in Italy, and on the return of the partners to the flat they had taken in Burner Street, they found 800 pounds worth of concert engagement already booked by the agent, Mr. Healy, awaiting them. This entailed a lot of traveling. On October the 17th, 1892, Fanny and Charles starred in the first English production of Tchaikovsky's opera, Ugain Onegin. This was at the Olympia Theatre London under Largo's management. Manners as Prince Gremin and his wife was Tatiana. In 1893, following the death of the Duke of Clarence on the eve of his marriage, there was a slump in the world of entertainment. So Charles and Fanny, accepting invitations from some of the New York 400, the elite of the socialites, set out for America to look over musical prospects and secured at least one important professional engagement under the baton of Anton Seidel, a famous conductor at the Lenox Lyceum. And in this portion of her unpublished memoirs, the prima donna recalled the sting in some of the American critiques. Thus, last night the opera Boabdil was produced 
At the end of the opera, all the principal characters lay dead on the stage. Our only regret was that it didn't occur in the first act. On their return, and right up to the year 1896, Charles and Fanny were never without engagements in concert and opera. For some years, Charles Manor had dispensed with an agent and was his own impresario, being a first-class businessman. Neither of the partners was extravagant. In fact, they put back quite a tidy sum of money for the future. On returning from America, they moved into a house in King Street, Portman Square, which was much roomier. In 1896, they accepted an offer for an extended tour in South Africa with concerts and operatic excerpts in costume from Faust and Philemon and Bokis. They opened in Cape Town, where they played to capacity, even in those pioneer days. Unfortunately, their tenor got tonsillitis. But William Dever, a tall and handsome Irish baritone, with a phenomenal range, sang the tenor part just as it was written. He had a most musical voice. The heat was appalling, but to compensate, the people were charming and very hospitable. From Cape Town to Kimberley, the theatre there was lit by paraffin lamps, which increased the heat. However, it was full house again. One night there was a thunderstorm and the rain came pattering down onto the galvanised iron roof, drowning the music. Charles came to the rescue, shouting that his wife could not be heard until the storm was over. After ten minutes, it was all over. In Kimberley, they encountered their last, their first, I should say, their first plague of locusts. A gruesome experience. Of course, they visited the De Beers mines, watching the diamonds being washed and collected. And later they were shown the cut stones, what a sight, an old man looking like Rip Van Winkle with a black skull cap and a long white beard presided over the ceremony of picking them up with his tiny pincers, placing them on a black velvet cloth and telling his visitors what they were worth. A visit to Nazareth House, a cool tree-lined oasis outside Kimberley, brought them into contact with a devoted collection of Irish nuns and Charles and Fanny with some of the Irish members of their company, treated them to a concert of Irish songs. One of these is the low-back car, and I will now put on a record by John McCormick. Of love, while she sits in her low back car, 
the lovers come near and far And they envy the chicken that Peggy is picking While she sits in her low-back car I'd rather own that car, sir, with Peggy by me side Than a coach and four and gold galore and a lady for me bride For the lady would sit for an inch me on a cushion made with taste While Peggy would sit beside me with me arm around her waist As we drove in our low-back car to be married by Father Marrow Oh, my heart would beat high at her glance and her sigh Though it beat in a low-back car In Kimberley, there were only about 300 Cornishmen, but they arrived one afternoon and presented Fanny with a perfect large uncut diamond, which she still had in 1938, and then on to Johannesburg. At Vereeniging, the border station, a man in uniform handed Miss Moody a newspaper announcing a reception to the distinguished visitors. At Johannesburg, several captains of mines came to greet them. One of them escorted Fanny down the station, and she had to shake hands with a long line of mining men. There were speeches, and at the end, the presentation of an illuminated address. Outside the station, a carriage and pair awaited them. The horses were taken out of the shafts, and they were pulled to their hotel, where a champagne lunch for everyone awaited them. And then, very tired but happy, the Cornish prima donna retired to her room and slept for hours. On Saturday nights, hundreds of Cornishmen assembled under the clock opposite the Singer's Hotel. So Penny Moody, with the accompanist Angelo Mascheroni, the conductor for the tour, came out onto the balcony when she sang Home Sweet Home, which stopped the traffic. A presentation of gold dust and nuggets followed, and the proceedings closed with the prima donna singing and shall Trelawney die the historic Cornish rallying cry. But of course you all know that song, so I think I'd better tell you a little story showing the, the attitude of the, of the Cornish to the rest of the what is called the United Kingdom. There was a hunt going on on the, bo on the borders of Devon and Cornwall, and a huntsman said to one of the natives, said, have you seen the fox? said, the last time I saw him, he was heading for England, which I think shows you the separatist attitude of the Cornish. Fanny Moody, before the party left Johannesburg, was presented by the Cornish miners with a diamond tiara of Johannesburg gold and Kimberley diamonds in the form of a pyramid with a coat of arms of Cornwall and in large letters the motto, one and all. The Transvaal coat of arms on each side in blue enamel and a small pickaxe and shovel in gold, symbolic of the digger. The miners had collected 600 pounds to defray the cost of the present. Charles Manners, too, received a present, an exquisite diamond. And then Pretoria, where they stayed at a hotel opposite the Houses of Parliament, and used to see President Kruger driving in and out. Fanny describes him as a fine-looking old man with a strong face, and goes on to say, Our boy friends were most hospitable and we were invited to a picnic just outside called the Willows. 
was a regular barbecue with loads of food and lashings of champagne. In Johannesburg at that moment, the water was undrinkable, so it was always shandygaff or whiskey and soda, and Guinness's stout was five shillings a bottle. The meat was very tough, and lamb and mint sauce were called goat and vinegar. George Manners, Charles's brother, was so scared about the water that he brushed his teeth with soda water. The dust storms were very unpleasant, but there was one good thing for one's comfort in the hotels. One could have unlimited baths, and Fanny found the only way to keep cool was to sit in a cold bath and read a book. From table mounted in Cape Town, fierce winds called the southeasterns would descend suddenly, and if you have no lamppost to cling on to, you could be swept off your feet. All primitive conditions of living in South Africa have long since disappeared. As for entertainment, opera and ballet are given as a matter of course and are well patronized. The Moody Manor's party had an exciting six months in South Africa, and despite the slight hardships they underwent in a country still in its pioneer stages, they enjoyed the experience, and the Moody Manor's combination returned to London with enough money to start and finance the Moody Manor's opera company, which made history and which must keep for another broadcast. <laughs>